Hello, friends. Welcome to the Lady Podcast. This is Andrew, and uh, great to have you with us. Thanks for tuning in. I'm here with Stephen, who is not in Athens, but joining us from uh, from the great Midwest in Minneapolis, and uh, here with a couple of really special guests. We're very excited to have um, both Drew Hart and Sarah Faye Harris joining us from the the beautiful metropolis that is Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Hey, guys, welcome. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having us. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah, great to have you. And and just by way of very short intro, and of course, I'll let you guys introduce yourselves. Um, Drew is a, a theologian, blogger, activist, and uh, most recently the author of, of an awesome book that both Stephen and I had the, had the pleasure of diving into here over the last number of weeks called Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. And um, Looking forward to to diving into this content, and then of course bringing a you know Sarah, having Sarah Fay in this conversation as well. Who's uh, Sarah's the the Sarah Fay is the music director at Harrisburg First Church of the Brethren, where I think both of you are in terms of home base of a church. But um, you know, I I always do do the introductions, you know, a little bit a lackluster job. So we'd love to have you each maybe introduce yourselves to our listeners. Yeah, well, welcome again. Thank you for having me. Um, I guess I'm a theologian, professor, um, just in my third year of teaching at Messiah College, author, former blogger, before that died off. Oh, former, um, was that former? I gave you credit yeah. as current blogger. Although I, maybe I will, maybe I'll revive it. I Technically, <laughs> I have two blogs. I have my own personal blog, and I also technically am a blogger at Christian Century. Um, okay. But don't look okay. for any updates from me from there. Um, also activist, I'm, I'm highly involved in several um, justice organizations um, in Pennsylvania, particularly in Harrisburg. And so... Um, and I also have um, 10 years of pastoral experience. And so I kind of bring, you know, kind of different dimensions and angles to the conversation. All right. Hi. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so, again, I'm Sarah Faye Harris. Uh, I am a peace and conflict studies student at Messiah. I'm in my final year. Um, I, again, uh, as you so wonderfully put, I'm the music director of First Church of the Brethren in Harrisburg. Um, I, do some activist work in the community. Um, I'm the education coordinator for our human rights awareness organization at Messiah um, and do some work around organizing students there as well. So, yes. So, uh, have you guys both, and you're both in, in, uh, in, in, in the Brethren, Brethren in Christ, right? That's an Anabaptist. Uh, the the church or the school? The the. the the church, I'm sorry. The church is not Brethren in Christ. The church is Church of the Brethren. Oh, man. Stream altogether. <laughs> sorry. Is that, is that like uh, a major thing? Did I just open like a wound or something? <laughs> well, the, the funny thing is that the Church of the Brethren comes from a very different like line in history than like Mennonites and Brethren in Christ do. Really? Okay. And so it's, it's a, just a different history, but they still drew on and were influenced by Mennonite Anabaptist history in some form. So still within kind of the Anabaptist. Yes, yeah, so they're camp. they're one of the Anabaptist um, historic Anabaptist denominations, but they just don't have the same origins. What what are can you can you indulge me and, and kind of explain that a little bit? I mean, I'm not so. Uh, this is my year and a half of being at you know this church, but I mean, 
in their origins, um, I think they came around almost like 200 years later, I believe. Okay. Okay. Um, they were actually called the Dunkers. The <laughs> Dunkers. Time. In fact, if you're familiar with uh, Jared McKenna, um, I know that he gave some talks to some of the brethren and um, and he encouraged the young people to reclaim the name Dunkers because he thinks it's pretty bad. <laughs> right. Dunkers, like, why Dunk? Like for baptism? baptism. Yeah, yeah, for the baptism, I'm the sure. The plunging. But I if you're an say Dunkers. Does that make you a double dunker? Because you're like a you're an Anna Anna. You're a double dunker, yeah. Well, that's what they would have probably been accused of, right? Of double dunking. Yes. And they would have said, "No, we're dunking for the first time." Oh, yes. that's right. The first one didn't stick. Yeah, that's right. Okay. We gotcha. love Jared. We had Jared on actually a, few, a month or two ago, and I can just see him saying Dunkas or however he says it, not in that way. I know. We didn't have any kind of witty nickname for him, man. I'm no. I'm kicking myself. We're gonna next time around. We're gonna fix that. Yeah. For sure. Guys, thank thank you so much for joining us today. Uh I got I gotta say, man, this this conversation has I mean, I I've I have I've just been, I don't know, I guess living under a rock for a while. Um in it, it, it as far as just being out of out of touch with the fantastic work you guys are into and and in the in the really important conversation here that we're gonna have on on just faith and race and how the church um particularly in the United States. And, and I think particularly generally in, in, I, I guess I would say more sort of conservatively oriented or maybe evangelical, probably be a better, a better term, um, style churches. Um, would you, what side question, would you consider Anabaptists within broadly an evangelical fold or would you, would you, how would you map out that Venn diagram? Yeah. I mean, I think that um, some people do, I would say that Anabaptists, overall are more evangelical adjacent than they are evangelical themselves. Um, okay. There's, there's some things that I think you could argue um, they share in common historically. And so like even the Church of the Brethren, I mean, they identify themselves as Anabaptists and Pietists. And that Pietist mm-hmm. in some ways is some things that they could share with evangelicals. Brethren in Christ, same thing. They say identify themselves as Anabaptist, Wesleyan, and Pietists, right? And, okay. um, and so there's some elements that overlap I would probably say that the historic Mennonites probably are the least um, evangelical, but even there, there's a pretty broad spectrum. And so there are very, some that are very evangelical, some are much more almost mainline feeling. Um, and so it's, it's a little more complex. So the evangelical language probably doesn't fit smoothly with Anabaptism, but there are some similarities and some differences that exist. Okay. And That's I, helpful. I had one other question first before we dive into some of the content. Can you guys give a little bit of background into, like, obviously you both are at the same church and you're both at Messiah College, but there's obviously a big intersection in, in your interests and your passions and, and your work. And we're going to talk about that maybe a little bit later in the podcast, but just maybe a little snapshot of where you two intersect in terms of your interests and, and work in your community. Where do you think we intersect or where do you think we intersect? Well, I mean... The first time I, the, how I got to know Sarah Fay was in my own course, in my Anabaptist theology course that I taught. I taught Anabaptist theology for the very first time last year in the spring, and I was determined to teach it different than it's ever been taught before. That's how I've been describing leading up to it, that that's how I was mm-hmm. going to teach it. And the way that it had been taught previously was, um, in most cases, as far as I've heard, is it's a very Eurocentric way of looking and thinking about mm. Anabaptism. 
Um, but I think it actually um, is a dishonest way of engaging, especially contemporary Anabaptism. The majority of Anabaptists around the world are people of color. And even in the U.S., the Mennonite Church USA is 20% non-white. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you got black, Native American, Asian, you know, um, all kinds of different um, communities that are, Native Amer- that are um, Anabaptists. And so I wanted to teach a course that uh, looked at some of the insights of that, those communities and not just a Eurocentric strand of it. Um, so anyway, that's the course that I taught, yeah. and that's how I got to know Sarah. And Fair. I think that was when I was came to... Uh, choose that course. I was um, in a very large state of just being very theologically hungry for something that I could actually like chew on. Um, I think I was very much fed some class, like just this idea of what is classic theology and essentially what is white theology. And I was hearing something different and I had heard that his class was going to approach it differently. Um, I think it's often I think where our passions intersect quite a bit is that um, our belief that theology cannot be understood from this very heady um, sort of perspective that is often praised in Western um, context, this um, large emphasis on rationalism tends to wipe yeah. out the experience of the subaltern. Um, so it wipes out the experience of women, it wipes out the experience of people of color, it wipes out queer people, it wipes out people of all three of those, um, of, at the intersection of all three of those identities. So just kind of really delving into a radical reimagination of Jesus. And I think we both feel passionately about seeing that happen in the church. Um, I think there's a big, um, desire for more prophetic voices in the year, uh, in the church and seeing that kind of happen. So I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, so as we jump in here to some, some of the, uh, the content of the book and some more of your work, this is, this is more just coming from my own ignorance. One of the things that I found myself having a hard time, uh, distinguishing clearly was, uh, race and ethnicity. Can you talk a little bit about that? What's the difference between those two terms? Yeah. um, And I will. So race, basically, it's a social construct that was created, right, by Europeans um, to distinguish. um, And in fact, not just to distinguish, to categorize human beings. Right. That was the goal um, that that in the same mindset, because out of flowing out of the Enlightenment and modernity, you know, people got very confident in their scientific capacities to categorize all of creation, right? To categorize plants, to categorize animals. And then people looked out and saw and encountered people that looked differently when they went to Africa and to, you know, South America. And they decided that they could categorize in the same way human beings. Um, And so they brought that scientific logics and tried to categorize people in that same metric. Um, Unfortunately, of course, we know today that, you know, the differences between human beings are so minute, I think it's like 0.1% or something between human beings, right? Um, And so that the, what they were perceiving as these massive differences to differentiate human beings were actually not objective. That was just more perceived based off of um, observable physical differences, right? Um, And so race is a social construct 
um, based on the logics of white supremacy to differentiate mm. beings. And then now carries out and has ongoing inertia and power in our in our lives in terms of the logics, the way that we think and see, right, um, human beings. That's really what it is. It's a it's a it's almost like a magic trick. Um, but that's how yes. we think and that's how we see human beings through that lens. And so um, thinking about race as a social construct first and foremost is really important. And then to think about what is ethnicity, um, not necessarily even still necessarily a biological claim, but it is about people groups, right? That's what ethnicity is about. It's about culture and practices and people groups and peoplehood. Um, and so um, technically, I guess race, you can have, like I would say, black people in some ways then can function as an ethnic group in America um, in the sense that there's a sense of peoplehood, right? A story and practices and heritage and all that stuff. Um, but in terms of racial identifications, um, at least from a biological stance, it's a lie. It's not true. Yeah, okay. Um, and so I think that that is the, the kind of the bridge that people struggle to get over is to realize that the actual claims of race are not actually true, that it doesn't have the biological backing behind it that we imagine that it does. And it's much more arbitrary. Um, and in fact, if you go to different countries or continents for that matter, and you have people talk about race, they have different boundary lines for what makes somebody white or black or something. So I could go to Africa in some places and, and I might be considered white or at least not black, right? I might be something else. Um, and it just depends on how race was constructed and, and defined in that particular space. Okay, that that that's helpful. So now, do you think that the the, the some of the shared culture, uh, like what you said earlier, if, you know, if, maybe now, like in America, we could sort of consider almost black. Black has a, 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 a enough. How, how did you word? I really like how you said it. A people have been formed out of yes. So, so yeah. race might have been the construct, but the lived experience of race was real, right? And yeah. So, yeah. And so out of that lived experience, uh, people have been formed out of that, right? And so we can acknowledge um, that there are some shared identities and experiences and customs and all that kind of stuff that have come out of that lived experience. But it's it shared, I guess, as, like you said, the lived experience of of, of, an, of being oppressed, of being, I guess, sub, like a, a, a subjugated, more or less, a, a, to a white supremacist system. Is that oppressed, but also uh, a lived experience of resisting that oppression and overcoming it, all of that, right? It's the whole package. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Excellent. Um, that, that's, that's, uh, that, that's helpful. Um, your book, you talk about this epistemological gap and, uh, be- between people of color and, and people who are white. And I really like that section of the book. I thought that was, uh, uh that was really insightful and, 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 helpful for the church. I'm wondering, can you unpack just the term, uh, we're going to get more into that gap here in a minute, but can you unpack the term epistemology? Can we talk about that? Yeah. I mean, epistemology is talking about our ways of knowing, um, our different ways of knowing. So it's just being attentive to the different ways that people know in the world. How do we come to know? Where do, where does our knowing come from, right? Um, what are the roots of it? And so just being attentive to the fact that um, we have that people can have different ways of knowing and seeing and observing and making sense of the world um, that 
we can take for granted that, that it's not always happening the same way and that we're not necessarily even drawing from the same sources. And so, you know, some will say not only do people sometimes have different answers to questions, but sometimes we have different questions altogether mm-hmm. and we're not even paying attention to those kind of nuances. Okay. Okay. So, um, what do you guys think? There is this actually, okay. Before I go there, I want to start with whiteness. Sarah Faye, how would you think about whiteness? Can you talk? I mean, how did you define that term? Okay. Well, actually, I think to just go back a little bit in the history. So the idea of who's white changes a bit over time as far as American history. So I think that's definitely worth noting. So I think what's important is that power structures um, and unjust power structures exist far before our ideas of whiteness and our attachment to power to whiteness. So um, we have... uh, a large wave of European immigrants coming in to the U.S. And I would say um, Anglo-Saxons, or I guess we would say wasps, um, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants are kind of at the top of the food chain. Um, But then we have these other smaller people groups. Um, We have Irish people coming in. And then I, I, what I philosophize um, creates whiteness is that they are originally oppressed people groups. The, the Irish are not looked upon with favor amongst the Anglo-Saxons, um, so or the, the British. And they are still able to blend in, though, and eventually they give up part of their identity to the power structure that is whiteness. So they give up part of who they are, part of their culture, um, to be part of the, the, the greater power structure. And you see a great Italian migration, and then... Um, the Irish and the British are able to gang up on the, on the Italians, but then eventually the Italians give up part of their culture to be part of this great whiteness. And you see this great power structure and then whiteness starts to form um, specifically in opposition to, to other people, to what is not white. So blackness, um, Latinx people and Native Americans. So anything that is not white that is not European. And it's kind of this deep power structure, though, that I think it's important to be understood outside of just our idea of white, because then we can mistake in our own minds that whiteness should be understood as, as, as power. And we think that must that has to go back as far as humankind. But I think if we understand it as a as a power structure, as a principality and power hmm. of of darkness first, and then we realize that people are giving up part of who they are historically in order to join this power structure. Um, I think that helps us understand it. And then I think that also understands what happens when people challenge their whiteness. So we have some white people during the civil rights um, movement that decide to go on the buses um, with black students that are trying to register people to vote. And they are also lynched and murdered. So what happens when you challenge whiteness, when you actually decide to give up what you, um, when you decide to give back the power that you kind of exchanged a bit of your soul for historically? Um, So I I think that's how I understand whiteness is that it's not just about being white, that it's this bigger power structure that you can decide to give into 
Um, and I think it's also a power structure that we must work very actively to reject. And then we find when we challenge that, that there's a big, a big um, comeback. I guess there's there, resistance there, to that. But there are consequences for really challenging yeah. whiteness. Yeah. Yeah. There's a huge backlash. Drew, so any, I guess Drew anything you would add to that in terms of defining, you know, I kind of, as we're defining terms here, you talk about whiteness a lot, um, which <laughs> frankly makes me, well, what's interesting, you know what? I found myself just in full transparency. I mean, it's uncomfortable because yeah. I'm, a white male, right? And, and you actually yeah. point this, and we're going to unpack more of the whiteness conversation, but you even, you, and I forget the language you use, but when in describing people that aren't white, um, it's, it's like, it seems very normal in, again, I'm talking from my perspective in my community, right? It's very normal to describe a person as black or as, or you say African-American or whatever term, but there's cl clarifying that minor detail is just part, it comes, is what you do, right? But, right. but white, like you've no need to say it, right? It's like, of, of course, like that's the default almost. It's this scary reality that it's like, yeah, whiteness is the baseline. It's the normal. And then when it's when it's not, we describe it. So I find myself going, dang, you, bro, you're saying white a lot here, man. Like I'm kind of feeling <laughs> like, dang. But then I'm like, well, how do people, I mean, it kind of it humbled me out a little bit. I was like, dang, like what if every time someone was describing me, not in front of my face, it was like, yeah, like Andrew, yeah. Yeah, he's the white guy. Like that guy, would, it's just, I don't live right. that experience oh, that so many other people yeah. live. Yeah. No, anyway, no, no, no. anything you'd add? So, so, and I think just to make a slight differentiation between whiteness and then white identity, right? Sure. Um, whiteness in terms of the power structure and also social performance, but then um, white identity to talk about like, why, why are white people so uncomfortable being called whites, right? That's yeah. all, right? And, and it's precisely that white identity that, you know, people are formed, it's precisely an identity that claims to be the universal, normal, neutral mm. person, right? That that just float, I'm just me, you know, I'm just Drew, I just float above it all. I'm an American, I'm a Christian, but I don't have a race, right? I, I'm just yeah. an individual person, right? And that's how a lot of people have been raised to, to see and think about themselves. And so to then have an identity, a racial identity clung to you is uncomfortable. And then for someone to be saying it over and over and over again, white, 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 white privilege, white supremacy, white this, whiteness, right? All of that is very uncomfortable and unsettling for a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. And so I do it intentionally, right? I say white uh, that many more times um, to to unveil, you know, um, the interlockings that, that a conversation of race is supposed to be about black and brown people, um, rather than to have mm. a substantial conversation around whiteness, which often is the very thing that needs to be talked about. And one of the things I like to highlight wow. is so back in the early 20th century, right? Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and brilliant black thinkers, but they even struggled to get at the heart of it, which is they would call the race conversation the Negro problem. And now it's, wow. it's not so much more recently, they're like, no, 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 it's not the Negro problem. It's the white problem, right? <laughs> it's a white controlled society, a white dominated society that constructed racism and Jim Crow and mass incarceration today, right? And so let's be honest, like let's pay attention to those who have the power to construct and define the society as it is. Mm -hmm. And it's not black and brown people, it's white people. Mm -hmm. And they have also have the identity, the power to, to decide who are racial beings and who float above that. Um, and we yeah. need to, yeah. Yeah. I think so, normalization of white identity is also epitomized in, in, in white Jesus that 
that somehow Jesus is a Palestinian Jew um, who probably is short, has dark curly hair, um, and is is not white and pink, um, and is <laughs> constantly displayed in all of our church windows and all of our paintings. But we just assume Jesus, you know, um, uh, that is neutral. Jesus is neutral. Jesus has no race. Jesus. Jesus has no culture. There's Jesus culture. Um, And and it's just epitomized in that image of Jesus, which is why there's been a large movement of people that will specifically call um, this image um, white Jesus and will refuse to just say Jesus um, because we need to constantly refute that normalization um, and uh, painting white identity as the ultimate identity, the unquestioned identity of of goodness. Um, So. You know, you know what's funny? My my daughter got a um, she got a, a stuffed a stuffed Jesus one, one <laughs> not so long ago, and he's wearing he's exactly what you said. He's got this white sort of tunic thing, and a blue sash. I mean, he looks like he just won some sort of like a Norwegian beauty pageant. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, so. But I, I think going back to the let's, let's camp on the identity thing for a second because that picture of Jesus, I think, comes from a white identity. Like sort of sort of uh, uh, projecting onto Jesus and and probably even the category of the divine attributes that are that are really rooted in in a white identity. Absolutely. Um, so, one of my favorite, I guess you can call him a white theologian, uh, Stanley Howard was. Yes, he is a white theologian. <laughs> he says, uh, "He's awesome." In his he own says, white way. "He says uh, uh, that we like to imagine ourselves to have no story, except the story that we chose." when we had no story. But one of the things that your book talks about is that our identities, particularly our, our, some of our, our, our racial or our, 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 um, our identities that, that are formed as a result of being in a racialized society are the product of, of our story that, that has, that came into existence long before we showed up. Like we never actually chose the story. So I, I want to know what, what do you guys think is, um, what, what story does the Church of the White Jesus like to imagine itself to be rooted in? And what story is it actually rooted in? Yes, dude. Yeah, I mean, so what story does it like to imagine itself in? I mean, I imagine that most white Christians see themselves as the um, protectors of orthodoxy and faithfulness, right? Um, and that they are the ones um, protecting and pre- and preserving it, especially from these bad black and womanist theologians mm. and others, right, who are trying to um, turn the conversation too far off from what it ought to be about. Um, and so I think that there there is a way in which it gets framed um, as preserving um, faithfulness over time, right? And especially that language of orthodoxy and even the way that heresy um, among some, especially fundamentalists, but even broader than that, even still gets used, that language quickly gets thrown out at people, right? Um, it's a boundary policing kind of language. Um, but I think that in honesty, I mean, the history of Western Christendom and the history of colonialism, right? I mean, so you talk about so, the, you know, so Harawas will at least he can follow along with this. Right. First 300 years, he gets this from Yoder. Right. First 300 years, you know, church is more marginalized, Constantine um, and it, the Christendom grows. Um, you think up to like around a thousand was it 1095 A.D. Crusades and all that stuff. Right. So you have the peak of Christendom at that point. Um, 
But what you also have going on is the church um, teaching the doctrine of discovery and giving permission to, it's mm-hmm. called terra nullius, right? Um, in 1095, where the Pope says, you can go and claim the empty lands, which is not actually empty lands. What he mm. means by that is heathen lands, right? And you can go take it from the heathens and claim it as Christian. And so that's the starting, the the beginning theological imagination that's needed to go and, you know, colonize. Of course, it's only a few centuries later beyond that, um, that then first per- Portugal begins to actually go to Africa for slaves. Um, the Spanish follow quickly. They're going then soon to... Um, you know, the Americas, um, and then full-blown colonization, conquest, and slavery, right? Mm-hmm. All of this is happening out of the imagination of a Western Christendom logic. And that's this history that is unfolding, and that's the history of, of where whiteness eventually flows out of. Um, and nobody wants to acknowledge that their Jesus, that their songs, that their traditions are deeply entangled in this history. It's really messy. Um, and so I think that that's the stuff that uh, that that I think the white church has to wrestle with, um, that there's this long history that is shaped so that how do we get to the point where we have this white Jesus that's just taken for granted and little kids can have, you know, white Jesus that you can squeeze and hold and so comfy. Um, it doesn't happen out of any. It's a long unfolding story um, that folks still have refused to grapple with. Um, and it's thousands of years in the making, but also then to think about the hundreds of years in more recently um, and the really, to use Willie James Jennings language, the diseased mm-hmm. theological imagination of the church that in wow. several hundred years. Yeah. And to, to think of the history of the church is to why it's not the church and colonization, the church and colonization were one guiding force. Actually, um, the crusaders, the, um, the, the League of Knights that would um, be going are, are the ones that form the nation states that then go and colonize for the church, for God. Um, but it's, it's not even just going for the heathens. They actually destroy, the white Jesus destroys other iterations of Jesus. In other parts of the world, the Portuguese go to India. They find um, the Church of Thomas because Thomas goes there right after he's like, taking that great commission, hiking over to India. And there's actually a, an ancient church there. They go over and they're like, Oh, there's Christians. And then they say that they're heretics. And then they, they kill them. Like just, they just go in and kill the church of Thomas where they have to convert, um, to, uh, the Pope's Catholicism. Um, wow. so it, why Jesus is not just this this neutral thing. Why Jesus is set up everywhere to remind people of how far they are from becoming pure, spotless, white, and clean. Um, and I, I wish people would have more of that instinct um, when they do encounter, when, when they think about their Christianity in the now, because I think it's often the temptation— um, and in a lot of um, evangelical-minded churches as well, to think, oh, oh, the the lost, but we don't think we don't think far enough to understand um, why countries are in the situations that they're in. Um, so there's often movements to go evangelize to um, people of color um, mm-hmm. broad. Um, 
But then there, I, I think if we think about our history, we we will have the humility to to know that we are probably the lost souls, the ones that continue to keep um, communities in uh, under our, our, our feet, um, our, our political feet, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. One of the things um, that you talk about a bit, Drew, in the book and that I I was thinking about, you know, I think even if, as you guys even unearth some of the history, like there's, there's, there's some people who don't know the history. They're ignorant to their history. They think they exist in a vacuum. The church, I'm thinking like religious people that don't know the past. Then others, they, you know, they, they might know a little bit. And then you, you continue down the rabbit hole of knowledge. Of like, wow, this is some, there are some brutal realities. Um, and even in Hartgrove's recent book, like he's unpacking some serious history, American history in the church, like things that happened, or you hear people talk about um, kind of G- the German church's complicity in, in during the Third Reich. And we, we can read the history. And at some point, Drew, you actually talk about how like you break down the timeline, you kind of break down like some major sort of milestones in the history of this whole thing, the racialized, you know, church. And, and, <clears throat> but it can seem like all of this, like in the present day in 2018, somehow it, it, it can become easy to literally just sort of pretend that like, like, it seems like that's just so far in the past. Like there's no way we're still dealing with this or the consequences of this. And it can very quickly, we forget that this is like, this is a few really in the scheme of things a few years ago what what is it about our propensity to how is it that we're able to kind of just disconnect from the past and not i don't know why why does it feel like we sort of just live in this bubble here and now that isn't affected by the past um and what in your observation and the conversations you have yeah no i mean i think you you have to be able to do that to continue to um practice social dominance, right? Um, I often say, I call it willful ignorance, right? It's um, it's a choice of forgetting and it's a choice of framing it in a way that you could just say, oh, the past is behind us. We've moved on, right? Um, it, it, it's a particular, it, it's a rhetoric that you're socialized into, right? Children from a very young age are socialized into this kind of rhetoric to, to imagine that the past is past. While most people of color around the world um, they don't see history just functioning in such a linear fashion, but in a circular fashion, right? And that you actually need to break cycles, but it just doesn't just happen on its own. Um, and so, yeah, so in my book, I do, I walk them through from slavery, right? Yes. Uh, up through um, all the way to the end of slavery, early, you know, um, post-reconstruction and all that, to the mid-20th um, century. And I look at that first 350 years and I say, look, we can all agree that from 1619, when first Africans were brought over, up to the mid 20th century, well, while black people still don't have rights in this land, that the majority of white people were getting it wrong and that the majority of black people were getting it right, that they knew what was going on in their own bodily lived experience. Um, that is not even controversial, right? Nobody's gonna argue um, that most white people were getting it wrong um, from 1619 right. through the mid 20th century. But it's 350 years of white people getting it wrong. And it's different manifestations of racism at different points. And in each new phase, they kept getting it wrong. And so my concern is, what's the likelihood then 400 years in that white people right now in this moment 
are suddenly getting it all right and that black people who've been getting it right all this time can't interpret their own experiences anymore. Mm. Uh, it seems to be illogical. It doesn't seem to make any sense. And I think um, if white people were to just do some more self-examination and maybe even have the humility, and that, may, dare I say, I don't even usually talk about the fear of God, but a little fear of God <laughs> to say, like, you know, like, is there a possibility? Is there even a, a possibility that I could be uh, repeating what my ancestors already re- uh, did over and over again mm-hmm. to other people? And if that is possible, um, how? What do I need to do to break the cycle? Yes. And I think these are really important questions um, that. Um, you know, again, if you're committed to willful ignorance, then you tell a narrative that avoids that kind of self-interrogation for your, not only for yourself, but for your community, um, because it's hard to look into the mirror and see the kind of brutality. Um, you got it. You want to see yourself as good and nice and, and beautiful people. Um, and it's hard to pass it on to your children um, and say, yeah, we were monstrous to other people. Mm. Yeah. I, I really, Stephen, I'll let you continue in a second, but this, this part in the book, you just kind of quoted it, but it really hit me. It's like you hit slavery. So you have, you know, hundreds of years of, you know, slavery. Then you have, you fast forward all the way to Dred Scott in 1857, which the Supreme court effectively says in a seven to two decision, like black people are not citizens of this country, won't be citizens of this country. You move on to Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896, which confirms, you know, racial segregation decisively. And then, and that's 1896. And then you quote, it's not funny, but it's like, it's just blow away this survey. And, but in May of 1946, nearly seven out of 10 white Americans surveyed believe that yeah, quote, gosh. quote, Negroes in the United States are being treated fairly. Yeah. Uh, and you say, yeah, I'm going to finish your quote. Yes, you read it. Uh, end quote. Yes, you read it right. In the midst of Jim Crow segregation, the terror of the KKK, the open torment and intimidation by the white citizens council and the regular violence against black people in America who had no protection or judicial recourse. Most white Americans did not think there was a racial problem. Yes. These numbers included Christians too. And of course, then we move into civil rights era, but that's, that's powerful, man. Yeah. Let's okay. So let's, uh, one of the things as I'm reading this book, um, I think because it is it is it is uh, exposing and and it's touching a, a real nerve for me as a white guy. Uh, I definitely found myself wanting to say, like, but that's not me. I'm not I'm not racist. I'm not. And 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 you talk about this and, and, and your diagnosis I think is spot on because you mentioned basically that. White people essentially will tend to think of racism uh, as like like what what happened with Paula Deen, right? Like she apparently let let something slip out, and it was like, see, look, there you go, you are a racist. You, it's a manifestation of some kind of a, of, of a personal prejudice against somebody else. And then um, what happens is that person becomes a scapegoat. All the while, the actual hierarchical, like demonic structure that that exists for real, never even gets talked about because right. we just basically cast all of our racism onto Paula Deen and then send her away. Yeah, find um, someone that says the N word and basically shut them down, and we we can wash our hands of this essentially. That's right. So, what what would it look like? Um, for particularly white Christians to, to have this conversation more honestly, and, and how would that uh, affect our, our ability to witness to what God is doing in the world? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the starting point, I mean, and this is something I get at in the very beginning of the book, 
is how we even just define racism, right? Um, I think so long as white people continue to control and define what is, they get to be the deciders of what is racism, what isn't racism, we're already in a losing game for everybody. Um, Mm. Because uh, white people, it's to white people's benefit to define racism in such a way that they can never be found to be racist, right? I mean, that's, it's a game. It's a rhetorical game that gets played. Um, but if we move from this thin definition that nobody can, unless someone admits it themselves, basically, um, no one is ever racist, to a thicker definition that is not looking at one's intent, but is just saying, look, racism is a system. It's a system of a racial hierarchy embedded into society, practices, policies, structures, all of that. In our, it organizes our everyday lives. We can see it in patterns, right? We could see it patterned all through slavery, through Jim Crow, but we could also see it patterned all through today in terms of funding for education, in terms of housing access, livable wages, discrimination all across the board, right? We can see it patterned all through our society. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that we all live in this society. We all inhabit it. We all navigate it. And so the fact of the matter is, um, if we're going to wrestle with what racism is and what our place in it, and especially as Christians, the first task is to just acknowledge that our whole society is racialized. And once we can realize that our society is racialized, that we have um, uh 400 years of racial inertia of history in terms of anti-black racism in this land. Um, nonetheless, if you want to go back further than that in terms of um, the indigenous people, right, um, then then we can begin to talk about what does repentance look like, right? Um, yeah. I mean, because I mean, I feel like a Christian posture is not avoiding the fact that we are sinful beings. It acknowledges it. it confessed, it's a confession starting point, right? And then it's a repentance after that and saying, I'm going to turn and live differently in response to that and try to follow Jesus out of this mess um, and grope my way out of this mess uh, towards the reign of God. Uh, but I think that as long as the instinct is to deny and to use rhetoric to deploy and avoid and dodge and skirt um, any acknowledgement that we might be complicit and, a part, and participate in it, and advantage and be advantaged by it, right? All of these things. Um, if we can't acknowledge that, then I think um, it's it's an antichrist posture. It's not following Jesus at all into the world. Mm-hmm. You want to add anything, Sarah? Right? Well, I actually some people. I think what's interesting is the people that have acknowledged it. But you you said something interesting about um, you know, uh, talking about it more honestly. And I think there's also another movement of woke people that are um they're like yeah i'm racist or or yes i have white privilege and it's almost just to it's like congrats now you're the 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 head of of the of the liberals now it's like uh now you're in in you are of the um the moral left, you are now at the top of that food chain. Congratulations. So there's actually no relinquishing of that power. And like, I think specifically our, our duty as Christians is to see that we have that power, like where we are in this system and think, how can we actively fight it? Not just acknowledge our position in it, but know that this, this power, um, this power system destroys um, and it destroys us, um, and we must constantly fight against it, I think. So it's not just 
acknowledging because I think it becomes like almost a badge of honor. Like I am a white person and I have acknowledged my privilege and I just yeah. you people should know how um, wonderful I am. And they use it on it and sometimes they use it to bash um other white people who have grown up in the system, I also noticed uh, a bastardization of other white people. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it also huh. ties into classism where they'll be like, oh, it's the Hicks. They're they're super racist. But also, like, it's this it's a whole system that pervades everything. And to some degree, they have um, They've slept and ate and, and breathed this stuff just in the same way as our um, fancy liberal friends have also done. Um, but they often are scapegoated. And I think that's when you find a lot of tension between people who get to admit to the racism, not give up the power and still be at the top of the hierarchy, I think is also a problem. So when we're, we're talking about it honestly, I think we need to push that that we need to talk about racism, but we need to talk about it honestly, that um, just because you acknowledged it doesn't mean you've, you've finished um, the work. Mm. So. Wow. Wow. That's man. I got to like sit on that one for a while. That was McK good. McKenna calls that's, that, that's uh, a... Jared McKenna says more woke than thou. Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. His, yeah. that's his life. That's right. That's right. And the, and the purity games of, of yeah, liberal progressive stuff. Um, Liberal progressives are just the worst, man. They're, they're yeah, they're, man, they're <laughs> just the worst. No, it's like you, it's like you said. You were um, you were like, oh, it's I'm I'm not racist, and I think the yeah. tendency is to be like, I'm not those racist white people. Instead yeah. of being like, oh my gosh, racism really sucks. Yeah. Like, wait, I'm oh my gosh, no, no, yeah. no that's yeah. my uncle. That's not me. You know, instead of being yeah. like, whoa, this system I benefit from is affecting this person, yeah. and I need to do something to change that. So, I think it's a uh, deflection technique. How do you respond to uh, So, okay. Uh, let me get my words straight here. I, I'm curious. I, I want to describe something uh, and I want to see if it, if it matches your experience in having conversations like this with white people. Um, because I think that, uh, it's easy. Just like, like we're talking about for, for in this conversation, it, to, to acknowledge complicity, in an, in an oppressive system, even if you're not like, if you don't own slaves or, you know, you're not like, I don't know, wearing a hood and burning crosses or something. Um, it, it feels like white people, we, 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 we want to quickly, we really want to nuance like we want it nuanced and, and especially like from people of color, like it seems as though uh, uh, I've seen these conversations sort of shut down because like, Oh, the person of color really didn't word it right. And that, and my feelings are hurt. And, you know, really you should, you should take, uh, you know, the, the frustration and the anger and the suffering that you feel as a product of being raised uh, to some extent with a boot on your neck and, and find a way to really, word it better for me, uh, so that I can take it better. Um, have you experienced that? And, and, and how, do, what can, what do we do about that? And please discuss white fragility while you're at it. Yeah. Sure. Of course. No, of, of course. I mean, I, I, no person white or black or <laughs> that, that engages and has conversations with white people about race um, has avoided, you know, those experiences. I think that um, uh, 
in some ways, you could argue that we've all been socialized to prioritize white people's comforts mm. um, at the expense of black people and other people of color suffering, right? And so white people's feelings on conversations of race matter more than black and brown people's actual oppression in the world, right? Wow. And so everyone's taught to kind of dance around and maneuver because for a very long time, there's been severe consequences for disrupting white people's comfort, right? Um, and so, I mean, there were times where uh, grown white, uh, grown black man couldn't even look another white man in the eyes directly without mm -hmm. worrying about whether he was gonna be, you know, lynched, nonetheless to dare to name and identify um, what what was going on in terms of the structures and the disadvantages and the oppression that was going on in society. And so we've all are coming from communities that have been socialized to not have meaningful conversations and that are deeply distorted in terms of our values, right? In terms of what actually matters. And so um, the very fact that somebody would think that their feelings actually matter, that they can actually acknowledge, yeah, he might've had a point, but but he said it the wrong way. Even just that deflection shows the kind of really distorted values that we can have, so mangled um, that our feelings, because of just an odd way that we didn't like how it was phrased, is way more important than how you know other people are experiencing. You know, again, um, you know, underfunded schools where the majority of students are not even graduating or barely, or you know, I mean, just to think about the kind of things that disrupt us and why we will can dismiss it and walk on and keep on moving, right? I think that that in and of itself shows that our values are really off. Um, so I, I think that that's one of the starting points for us is to um, recognize that we've all been socialized. And I say all in the sense that um, black and brown people have been socialized to not disrupt. Um, that that uh. this is something that you don't do. You don't talk like Drew and Sarah Faye are doing right now. Um, you don't just name whiteness, that's impolite. Um, you know that that causes trouble. You know that white people um, won't like that and that there could be backlash for mm -hmm. that, right? And so if you want to, let's say you want to uh, move up the ladder um, in your corporate world, you're not naming whiteness. You keep it to yourself. You suck it up. You internalize it. You you go home and you vent about it, but you never say it publicly because there's going to be consequences because then you're that guy who's bringing up race again Who because there's a whole range yes, of rhetoric, yeah. right? Playing the race card and all these other languages that yeah, you're being political. You're yeah. Being, uh, you're making a big deal. He didn't really mean much by it. It was just a joke, right? All these languages to dismiss um, uh, seriousness of racism. That that doesn't really matter, and that the real problems are the people who are bringing it up. Those are the people who are who are keeping racism alive. If we could just stop talking about it, then certainly we'd be in a much better place, right? This is the rhetoric. And it's just as old, I mean, again, uh, Dr. King dealt with the same thing, right? Uh, oh, these outside agitators are here. Our black people were just fine till y'all showed up, right? Um, yeah. Well, they don't have access to voting and are being intimidated and KKK and white citizens councils are running around terrorizing people. Um, but it's King, he's the outside agitator who's stirring up the Negroes, right? And so this rhetoric has existed wow. for a very long time, just Gosh. in different forms. Um, it's the very idea that you even name and identify and expose what's going on in our society is the actual problem. And so all of us, mm -hmm. everybody, we've all been socialized to have distorted values around, um, because the truth of the matter is some people need to be uncomfortable. That's the truth. Yeah. 
is that, and that's why I don't even like the whole, um, mm. you know, uh, people talk about like creating safe space. Well, in some sense, yes, if we mean like not actually doing actual harm to people. But a lot of times, some people confuse safe with comfortable, right? And so they yeah. feel unsafe in racial conversations because you talked about whiteness, right? Or you talked about a history that doesn't feel good. You remind me about slavery and Jim Crow and these things that white people did in the past and that doesn't feel good and I don't feel safe. And so the fact of the matter is, is that in that sense, people need to be uncomfortable. Some people need to be unsettled and I'd say that's for their good. It's not for their harm. It's because in, in breaking through that cycle, you can become more human, more like God actually designed you, living in right relationship with others in your community and before God. Mm. Wow. Sarah Faye, were you were you about to add something to that? Or? I'm just gonna take. You know that was a that yeah, was a whole yeah. moment. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's cool. Okay. You can feel the energy in the air. Honestly, wow. That was that was a I lot. Body. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I think. Yes. Um, I re- okay. So, I I work for uh, an organization on my. Uh, on the school campus that does a lot of um, service work, which has a lot of complexities within it. But uh, we were doing a tour of Harrisburg, right? Um, You should say something about Harrisburg. Oh, what? Demographics and stuff. Okay, so um, Harrisburg is... About 50%. Yeah, it's about 50% black, maybe like 30% uh, Latinx, and I guess the rest would be... um, uh, white Americans, um, but it's actually very, very segregated. If you look on policy map, it's like, boom, 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 just like street. And it's it's not a very big city, so you can see the difference and you can actually see where the city um, cares um, about where those limits are as well. Um, wow. And a lot of um, students from my school often do not like to visit. Um, they, they will label Harrisburg as a bad place. It's honestly, I, I grew up in cities. It's one of the, like, the nicest parts that I've <laughs> personally. Um, but, okay, so they went on the tour, and they were told to observe. Um, and they had a conversation. We, we went back to actually one of the, the the mainly white areas of Harrisburg. And we went to a coffee shop and I, I have my vendettas against coffee shops. I really do. But um, we went to a coffee shop and um, they started unpacking their experience. Um, and it was just kind of this um, very odd experience where they seem to have so much delight about pointing out um what were the faults in different places? And for them, it, I, I think it's I think it's called service porn or something like that, where you kind of just like love looking at these different pictures and you're like, oh, these poor people, oh my gosh. And so you guys, you kind of you learn the new language that's being used, and then um, you just kind of revel in it. And it was this weird moment where everyone was getting so excited, like, oh yeah, their their sidewalks were horrible. Um, and then one of the people, and I was, I was very frustrated. Um, one of the people was like, I was surprised there were so many churches. And I was like, why surprised? And everyone was like, <gasps> and it was like, that silence was just delicious. But then I got so nerve. I was like, oh my gosh, they really like, I, I mean, I, and then I was like, oh, I didn't mean that as harshly as I meant it to. And I definitely did because 
Wow. It was they were like, oh my goodness, how could these people have churches and be poor and um, not be white? It was just like they couldn't fathom. And it's like the communities of color in America are actually a lot more Christianized than white communities. So right. why, why are you surprised? Yeah. Um, we'll be at church every Sunday um, while you're figuring out your midlife crisis. So it's like, you know, um, <laughs> anyways, it was just moments like that where it was like I was I was saying why surprised, which was an honest question. It was out of frustration. I, but everyone was like, oh, no. And so much wow. of, I, can't, I can't tell you how much of the programming that um, – our multicultural office has had to do has to be centered around talking about topics, but making sure no one gets upset. So talking about black lives matter, but being like, Oh my goodness, what do we have to do to make sure everyone's okay? And they're not talking about the black students. They're not talking about other students of color. They're talking about the white students, making sure they're okay. After going to 30 minutes of, of, of programming that sort of highlights what we have to go through. So it's like we have to filter our our lives constantly just to be a, vaguely appealing. Like, thank you so much for coming and, and, and trying to share an interest. Like, we have to grovel at people's feet just to – just for um, showing some basic human concern for anyone else mm. in their immediate social circle. Um, that's a good example. Anyways, yeah. Well, that's a very that's a very good example. So, I, I know I know we're we're coming up here on time fairly soon, um, but I do I do want to hit this this idea of, of of the epistemological gap, and um, I was thinking about this, and and Luke seventeen, Jesus uh, comes to the Pharisees. And he says, hey, guys, basically, like, you think the kingdom is going to come this way. So you've been formed in a story where the reign of God looks like this. And you think you know what it means for the reign of God to exist. And you think that it looks like that. But I'm and and what he says is the kingdom of God is not coming in that way. Like Literally, which I love, it's, it's not come. It's not happening like that. Instead, it's already in your midst, but they didn't realize it. So. For me, that felt like a, it seemed like a really um, it sort of it, it, it solidified in my mind that that, that epistemological gap between the, the, this position of power and you know the the lived experience of everybody that Jesus had been healing and 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 going around and everyone who was who was experiencing the kingdom of God was sort of at the bottom of that power structure. So, can you unpack a little bit? The, the difference in epistemology, the difference in ways of knowing on on, on opposite ends of that hierarchical um, uh, structure and why that matters in conversations of theology. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's the really important issue, right, is is how do we understand the two things? So it's one thing for me to give, you know, 400 years of history and say, all right, people who've been a part of the Dominic culture have been missing it and people at the bottom have been getting it right. All right, that's a historical, and maybe you could a history of sociology maybe at the most, right? Yeah. Um, but, then, but then the question is the theological connection to it. Um, and that's to say that God, um, in fact, I, I think First Corinthians for me is a starting point for me when I think about you know epistemology in a, from a theological standpoint. 
um, that that Paul teaches us that 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 God in Christ Jesus is expressed in Christ crucified, and, and it's there that the power and the wisdom of God is revealed, right? right. Um, and and it goes on to um, he goes on to suggest that right out of thinking Christ crucified, right? That that he can see now and unpack how the world works, right? That God has chosen the weak to shame the strong, um, mm-hmm. those that are considered nothing to to shame those who are considered something, right? And those and anyway, and so you get this sense in which um, Paul is helping people to think um, how 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 has God's activity unfolded in actual history on the ground. And it's among those who are con- who've not who are not special, those who are lower class, those who have been deemed out. Um, that that's the activity in which the reign of God has been unfolding and has been active. Um, and it's precisely um, when we take seriously then um, the fact that those who have been racialized and oppressed and been crushed um, over and over and over again in our society, that that they are the. Uh, they are in the edges, cracks, and, and margins of society, precisely where God says the reign of God is taking place. Um, and, and that they then are, their lived experiences is the very context in which Christ joined them. In, as, to, the crucifixion is not only just about however anyone wants to frame it in terms of atonement. We don't have to even get into that today, right? Um, but... But it's not only to talk about atonement, but it's also to see that that in the cross itself, Jesus is identifying with the crucified of the world. Yes. Again, God's activity and revelation um, and identification in the world is happening in the location of the crucified of the world. Right. Um, so, wow, wow, so, yeah. so what does it mean then to think about what is God doing in the world? Where is God active? Um, I guess on one hand, outside of the theological, one could say, you know, we all have an ideological bias, right? I guess the question is, does or does Jesus not get revealed as the one who's in solidarity with the poor and the vulnerable, the least, the last, and most of society? If yes, then we've got to wrestle with, um, is there a posture, a, a social location, a way of inhabiting the world that is more in line with what we see revealed in Scripture as what God is, where God is active in the world, right? So that uh, to push my Anabaptist friends a little bit, right? So they usually think about the way, primarily just as these actions of loving one's neighbor and all these other things. That's great. I won't quarrel with any of that at all, right? But but also the way can also be understood as a social disposition in the world, right? How do we also follow Jesus in the way that he inhabited the world along with those that he inhabited the world with and alongside him? Who did he mm. cling to? Who did wow. he who was who was he a magnet to in the world, right? The most vulnerable in society. And so it's from that disposition that we say that we want to interpret and see the world because that's where God is active. And I want to be seeing the world and making sense of the world and interpreting the world from the very context that God is most active in the world. Among those that God says is he's revealing himself most clearly to and has privileged in society in, in a really powerful way. And so I think that that is the, the theological and the epistemological argument coming together and overlapping so that so that we're not just then talking about um, 
ideology or even just man-made theology, but it's to say we're participating in what God is doing and making sense of the world on the fly in the midst of that happening around us. Um, and that's why I, I, I'll take Sojourner Truth over Martin Luther any day, right? Uh, <laughs> right. Because wow. I think that she's got something that she understands about who God is and what God is doing in the world way more than any Martin Luther will. No offense to the Lutherans, I love y'all. <laughs> man. Yeah, that's good. Sarah, Sarah Faye, I saw you vibing on that, man. What's it? Come on. Talk to us. Wait, wait. <laughs> the waving hand. <laughs> well, well, maybe, well, to be more specific, I mean, in kind of segueing towards, you know, the, the, the practices, right? Like you talk about this during the book and you guys are obviously, and I'm going to have you expound on some, what, what are some of the practices? Like how, how do we begin? I don't want to jump too far ahead because there's, you know, just a, well, what do we do about it? Let's solve the problem. But, but at the same time, I think there, there's a reality of like, uh, there, there are, there are gaps we can step right into or sort of postures to use your language, Drew, that, that Christians, and I think particularly white Christians can begin to at least be aware of, and then maybe even, even press into a bit, um, Stephen, I guess I want to give you the space if you want to ask another question before we get into the practices. But if not, I'd I'd love to maybe start to dive into what it is you guys are seeing in your communities and and what you're pressing into in terms of practices in the church that really combat this, uh, really step into that that gap. Yeah. Um. I so okay. There's a song that we sing. I think it's I think it's pretty popular amongst. Maybe it's just popular with our church, and I'm just thinking it's an Anabaptist thing. But um, it's uh, they will know we are Christians by it's our love. Yeah. Okay, it's a popular song with Anabaptists. I've got the confirmation. I think bigger than Anabaptists. Bigger than Anabaptists, yeah. really. You know? Um, yeah. 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 I heard it before. I, I came to. Is it is it sung it around? Uh, that's a, that's a great question. I guess it could be sung in canon. We do not particularly sing it in canon, but that might just be us. You know, I think <laughs> I don't that's know if I know that song. I feel I, 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 okay. I'm going to go ahead and just embarrass myself. I'll sing it. You tell me if it's it. I think I might know this one. They will know we are Christians by Very our good. love, by yeah. our love. They will know that one. Yeah. You're way better than that than I am. But that, that yes, exactly. That, that's the one. No, I'm I'm all about communal <laughs> fam. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. So I, no, 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 no. Is what apparently the phrase I use. Um, but I I think it's it's quite a profound song, and I wish it would be sung in, in more churches. Is that we are not known by our love, so we need to we need to take some moments. Uh, yeah. To reflect upon that, and I think we need to turn back to some of the prophetic books. I think we need to turn back to books like Amos to get our cues. Um, I think we need to read things like "If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then." they will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. And I, I think what's super important there is I think one of the first steps of, of worship that white Americans can do, because I think often we want to have this conversation of race and we still want to maintain our power. We're like, oh, um, we hear hmm, white people are disproportionately in power in the church and in society. And we think maybe that's not the greatest thing. So let's, 
um, add an anti-racism position. If you're super lucky, um, let's add and a- have tons of money to pay somebody to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you pay someone, um, uh, let's add like an anti-racism position or, or a diversity position to our staff, um, to our otherwise all white and perhaps mostly male staff. And there's no one thinking mm. maybe what needs to happen is I need to step down from my position. And I think what needs to happen is, is a lot more wow. to realize that there's too much power being held by one group. And we need to realize what it means to lay our lives at the altar, that it has some painful consequences and that is difficult, but that Christianity is insanely beautiful in that it has that concept of laying down your power yeah. structures. Mm. Um, Christ asks of the prince to sell all he has and give it to the poor. And this man is not, he's, you could say he's a nice Christian, uh, not, he's not a Christian, sorry, but uh, that he is a, a, a pious man, that he follows the commandments. He has, he is earnest, but he cannot give up his position in society to follow Christ. And it is not an easy calling, and it's something we have to all ask ourselves. But our first act of worship is to lay it all down. So praxis, what does that mean? Do we have to give up some of our materialism um, and our, our, our tight grip on these positions of power, our tight grip on these processes? Maybe we need to step down as pastors. Maybe we, we need to step down from committees and be like, we need more input from other people in the community. Um and that goes that uh, I would also open that up to gender lines. Maybe there should be there should probably be more women in leadership. Most definitely. Um, we have too much power and it doesn't just happen by like giving that up and switching that paradigm doesn't just happen by like adding positions. It happens by people giving up yeah. um, what they've had for so long. Um, yeah. What, guess, what do you. Sorry. Hmm? Sorry, go ahead. Did I cut you off? No, 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 you go, you go ahead. What were you asking? What do you see as the, I mean, you're, you're, you know, worship director. Mm -hmm. What, what do you see as the function of worship mm -hmm. in accomplishing that task and creating communities of people who disempower themselves mm -hmm. in order to manifest the reign of God in the world? How, what, what do you see as the function of worship in accomplishing that? Ah. A great, that's a great question. I think, and this is this has been an interesting part of my uh, position is that music, um, which is a large part of the worship experience, um, whether you're in a more liturgical setting or or not, um, is often the 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 most visible part of um, where these clashes of, of culture and ideologies happen. So you have mm. a lot. Of that feel very personally about what they think is the best form of worship. Uh, and that is a very interesting experience. So that you have this beautiful opportunity of being able to include multiple people's traditions. And then you have these moments where people will not attend one service because they can't, um, because the music's too loud and the music's too chaotic um, it's not conducive to the presence of God. And it, 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 it's kind of codified for, because you often hear people say black and Hispanic people are too loud. We're too chaotic. Um, 
It's quite interesting to see those moments where those little fights happen. I grew up in a Pentecostal tradition. I often think that a lot of the hatred that comes towards Pentecostalism is often racialized, actually. Um, But sorry, back to the point of, of where I think worship comes. I think there's this powerful opportunity to um, speak to in this service to be able to highlight certain experiences. Um, so we make it a point at First Church of the Brethren to um, bring in songs from other traditions and not in a tokenizing manner either. We make sure that we bring in Spanish songs and not just English songs translated into Spanish, but actually uh. searching for Spanish songs and um seeing who's in our church and who's in the community and how can we draw from their traditions. We brought in a Yoruba song um, a few months ago and it's letting people be able to worship in their own way. It's such, especially for people of color, music has been such a powerful part of our experience, especially within the church. Um, It's given us hope in times of despair and that's such, and, and it, it creates this sense of community, and you can't have a justice movement without community. Um, you can't have a justice movement without a powerful sense of hope. Um, there's a there's a song. It's one of my favorite songs, but it seems to be blanking on it now. Um, woke up this morning with my mind stayed on stayed on free. Yeah, stayed on Jesus. I woke up this morning. Of course, stayed on freedom. And the interesting thing is that they were able to make that switch. And instead of saying, woke up this morning with my mind stayed on Jesus, they were able to say, woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom, and it meant the same thing to them. That's the power that worship has, that it it, it can mean so much to people. And that song becomes one of the leading songs in the civil rights movement, that they feel the divine validation um, of their movement that God is seeking for their justice and they are able to use freedom and Jesus interchangeably. And I think if we could tap more into that, um, instead of maybe playing the same four um, chord songs from Hillsong United, um, like I think we might tap into a very rich tradition that goes beyond um, synth chords and, and, and that really taps into this deep human experience. But we're missing such a wealth of that because we only regulate ourselves to Hmm. the few traditions that apparently are conducive to the presence of God. Which all happen to be Texas megachurches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's clearly, I mean, there are megachurches in Texas. That's that's the manifestation of the reign of God. There you go. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. No, I can relate. I mean, I can, man, I can certainly relate as someone worships near and dear to my heart, particularly the music piece. And as someone that, that leads more or less regularly, I, uh, and I grew up in a cappella tradition, you know, that was actually right. much more, um, I'd say, diverse. In, certainly, my church I grew up in was very diverse in, in mm-hmm. inner city Philadelphia. But I think the even that language, yeah, I, I just I can relate. Is all I'm saying. And I think uh, that'd be a whole maybe that'd be a whole other interesting episode. The sort of racialization of of contemporary Christian worship would be mm-hmm. interesting. But anyway, it's uh, quite fascinating. Honestly, I think more people need to look at it. It's yeah. like. <laughs> You find all these things about racism in the church, and then it's like diversity and worship, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we sing like God. Um, we sing how great is our God in Spanish, and we were so blessed." And it's like, okay, 
we would always whip out like uh-huh. some random songs in Swahili, but we were all white <laughs> doing it. It's just like I don't really know why this is a thing, and no one knows what it means. Uh, anyway, uh, this has been great, guys. Anything else you'd want to th- that you want to highlight in terms of your your work today? I want to uh, as we kind of move towards the end. Of course, I'd love for you to to you know, throw out any more, give our audience and our listeners maybe even more insight into resources they can turn to Drew, either additional kind of works, uh, talks or other things you, you do. I know you, you guys have some new ideas brewing as well. So I want to of course give you the space for, for that. Yeah. So as you already mentioned, my book, trouble I've seen, um, change the way the church views racism is available. If anybody wants to dig deeper into some of these conversations around racism and the church can go there. It's, Anywhere books are sold, you can find it. Um, you can find me, particularly, especially on Twitter. That's my millennial voice of vice of choice. <laughs> um, and so you can find me on Twitter at Drew D R U H A R T Drew Hearts at uh, on Twitter, and that's my handle. And um, well, I'll let Sarah Faye introduce herself first, so then we can talk one more thing that we're kind of collaborating on. What, I, what exactly am I saying about myself? Where, where can we find you? Where can online? we find you? We all want to follow I, you. Yes. You, well, I also have on Twitter. Um, so it, it's just my name. Apparently, my name is unique enough to not have any wow. numbers. So it's all lowercase Sarah Faye Harris. So um, F-E spelled with an F-E, um, like iron. Um, anyways, any chemistry nerds out there? There you go. I'll at you. Um, that's our main demographic. We target I would have went over my head. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's our main demographic. Oh, my gosh. Oh gosh! Uh, you said any resources? I think. Yeah, anywhere else you'd point people to, like even think we often give people space for that too, like big influences in your lives that you say, "Hey, check out this person," or just anything else you think people should be made aware of in this conversation. I think one of my big influences is definitely um, Kelly Brown Douglas. Um, she. She's she's wrote a wealth of um, books. So she wrote, um, I think she wrote um, Black Church and Sexuality, or Sexuality in the Black Church. And she also wrote a book, Stand Your Ground. Um, what is the, the blurb on that? Is it Black Bodies and the Justice of yes, God? Yes, Black Bodies and the Justice of God. That is speaks a lot about whiteness, actually. And she she makes this statement. Um, white church must choose whether or not they want to be white or whether or not they want to be church. And she really gives an ultimatum kind of sticks there. Um, She's, she, she doesn't shy away. I think she, she maintains academic humility, but doesn't lose any of the prophetic sharpness of her message. It's it's quite beautiful. So yeah. Great. Guys, this this conversation has been really uh, it's been inspiring, thought provoking. I mean, convicting. I, I I can't wait to listen to it myself. Um, <laughs> and I was in it already once. So yeah, I uh, listen. Thank you guys so much for spending time with us. Uh, I'd love to hang out with you guys sometime, man. Shoot, this yeah, is next time. So hey, away. I'll be in PA, <laughs> in Pennsylvania. Yeah. I'll be there in two weeks, I man. Don't know. It's cold. I might go down to Georgia. Yeah, hey, anytime you're y'all done. Come on down, man. Come on down. Yeah, notice that y'all inserted there. Y'all can come on down. Y'all um, can come on down. We're I, ready, I haven't, accept, I haven't accepted the y'all yet. I want to hear about this podcast idea in a second. But also, yes, I will be... Uh, I will be in Philly. Maybe I'll send you, but I, not really in Harrisburg. But anyway, yeah, tell us. I know you guys are, you know, even thinking about 
doing some sort of podcast yourselves? Yeah. So we've been um, brainstorming. I guess it started while we were, I think it was while we were heading to D.C. for the Poor People's Campaign for yeah. the comp, the big, I don't know what they called it. Rally. It, was, it, was, um, it was actually the, launch, the official launching of the Poor People's Campaign. So they were having Moral Mondays for Six weeks. Six weeks, and then there was the final launch. Got it. But anyway, while we were riding, we just brainstormed the idea of doing a podcast. Um, we've been chatting about it, and we kind of decided that we're going to focus on um, radical embodiments. That's kind of be the focus Ooh, of it. Ooh, I like it. Theology gets lived out and embodied on the ground, mm-hmm. and so I think that it's kind of hits some of our passions kind of coming together. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I guess okay. it's kind of like it's so it's like – Anabaptist, black activism, and then also Pentecostal um, feminist. <laughs> just like a whole bunch of a nice little gumbo of just some lovely bits. So I'm really excited about that, actually. Mm. So radical embodiment, keep keep an eye out. We keep will. us posted. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll totally plug it, man. That sounds like that sounds great. That sounds awesome. And thank you, thank you, Drew, for putting just pen to paper and, and you know putting this book together. And for both of you putting this into practice, I appreciate your willingness to step in to, to, to make us uncomfortable. Um, and, and I genuinely say for everyone listening, like certainly give this book a read and, and we'll of course post links to, to everything below. Um, Drew and Sarah, if you want to hang on two seconds, for our listeners, thank you so much for, for tuning in again. Great to, uh, great to have you with us again. Notes will be below and, uh, we'll, we'll see you on the next one.